Welcome to this Market Commentator podcast. My name is Rijk van Niekerk and today I talk to Delphine Govender. She is the co-owner and chief investment officer of Perpetua Investment Managers. Delphine, welcome back. Um, we spoke in early in December last year about the challenges facing asset managers uh, in what we perceive then to be volatile times. A week later, Nchlan Shanene was fired. And since then, we've been on a political roller coaster that has sent markets uh, all over the place. What is your take on what is happening now? Yes, it feels as though we've probably had a decade in just the space of what was only been 10 months. And just in terms of what we've experienced across markets, um, across sectors. And I think what's been interesting is that while on many fronts, the fundamentals of businesses in terms of economy and, the, and what businesses have been facing has to some extent deteriorated, but not necessarily due to just the noise factors, just due to the underlying structure of things. There has been, you know, more focus has really been on obviously all the, the, the day-to-day and week-to-week market-moving events. But having said that, I think perhaps the most interesting thing to me that despite the fact that we're dealing with a lot more volatility and a lot more murkiness in terms of near-term visibility, there's a lot more interest in terms of the underlying companies in the market and the fact that there's generally more attractive asset pricing in the South African market if you're below the usual headline shares today than perhaps when we last spoke 10 months ago when generally there were less opportunities. Can you give us a few examples? Sure. So, I mean, one of the most often topical sectors in the market, and I think it's purely because um, investors who are also consumers engage with the sector quite a lot, um, is the retail sector. And I think what's been interesting is that it's a sector that we actually have been very underexposed to the retail sector at Perpetua for the last four years. And for the first time in the last couple of months, we've seen that the pricing of that sector has come down to perhaps decade lows in terms of PEs, relative pricing of the sector. So 10 months ago when we last spoke, those shares were not necessarily as attractive. And I think if you just look across the market um, at the mid-cap space, we're seeing many more attractively priced assets, um, and including, I think I remember when we last spoke, we spoke about the banks. As you said, it was just before Nenegate, and then the banks went you know, significantly worse priced. But having said that, I think what we've seen is that they've weathered through this year better than people have expected. And so the expectations for you know, what was a worsening outlook wasn't as bad in the actual outcome. What uh, shares in the retail sector are you looking at? Well, I think what's interesting is that the general retailers are particularly more attractively priced than perhaps the food and, and drug retailers as, as we know them. So specifically look at a share like Truett's, which is I think at a, at a decade low in terms of its relative pricing PE ratio. Oh, it also has come back quite sharply this year. So that share was, you know, in the high 90s for most of the early part of this year and last year. And now it's, um, you know, for more than a month in the 70s and not much structurally has changed to the business. And I think this is the key thing is that um, Mr. Price has had quite a choppy year in terms of its performance and it's back now down to, you know, the 150 level. So, again, um, you know, relatively priced has come back. And then Fushimi, I think, again, a share that's come back. So generally that basket of, of general retailers um, is looking more attractive than it did to us a year ago. Well, if I look at your fund fact sheets, um, your equity fund as well as your balanced fund, your top shareholding remains Standard Bank. You also have British American Tobacco in there. And if I look down on the list, um, Barclays Africa is also there. So you're still quite heavily invested into the banking sector. 
Yeah, um, indeed we are. So I think what was interesting through this year is that as the, with um, all the talk of the potential downgrade, we saw the banking assets, particularly in the banking shares, come under significant pressure. Um, and coupled with that, that we were the outlook for inflation and interest rates was also looking as though it was very much the opposite of the nine. Um, and as a result, we saw that you know many of the banking shares came under um, adurated quite sharply. So we used quite a lot of that opportunity to increase our exposures, the financials, and, it's, and then to the insurers as well. So the financials are like a bigger percentage of our portfolio at the moment as they were a year ago. And interestingly, I think what we found is that the top 10 of a fact sheet is always a little bit tricky because it just shows you your 10 positions by virtue of their absolute exposure. What it doesn't show you necessarily is where the active positions of, of a manager are, meaning how different are you um, versus a benchmark weighting in, in, a, in a similar share. And what we're finding is that our active positions are quite different and we're starting to see that particularly because our benchmark obviously that that most of the equity fund managers are compared to is is quite skewed towards just a handful of shares. Um, Just the top 10 shares alone in the fixed benchmark account for just under 47% of that actual benchmark, which means that there's over 150 shares that account for the remaining 52%. Your equity fund is the the largest um, of the two retail funds. It has um, a close to two hundred and ten million under management. Um, how many counters are there in that portfolio? So that portfolio is quite interesting in that the number of counters has grown through this year, um, and it's closer to about the forty mark, which is more than one would have expected for you know an authentically active, value-oriented manager like ourselves. And that's really tied to one of the comments I made earlier, which is that we're seeing much more broad-based value through 2016 as this year has unfolded. Um, And in that environment, if you looked at our portfolio a year ago, we would have had perhaps a great exposure to resources, which were relatively um, very cheaply priced. As this year, for example, has unfolded, we've seen many more of the mid-cap industrials derate and become more attractively priced. We've seen more financials. So in that process, what you find is is fund managers are either taking profits in certain of their positions as those positions, you know, do well. And at the same time, they are purchasing others. And I think what we're finding is that because more of the ideas are in more attractively priced, medium-sized companies, you tend to put less of your portfolio into mid-cap shares. And so you have more holdings by number um, that are in your portfolio. Whereas if you are mostly in a, in a large cap portfolio, you'd find that fewer shares would account for this. But that is a, a defensive strategy almost. Not necessarily. Remember, Rake, we have a very almost fragmented index. So if you just look at the top 10 in our um, index by market cap, I think the average um, or, or the median market cap of the top 10 shares alone is about $370 billion. By the time you get to share number 50, it rapidly declines to around the $40 billion mark. So the point about this is that we've got very few shares that account for a disproportionately high percentage, which is comes back to that top 10 of the entire market is almost half the market. Um, so having more shares is not defensive depending on what shares they are. If anything, I think that we have just the right level of risk versus return because we're now position sizing based on um, the attractiveness of the share but also relative to the size of our of our active bet. Remember that many of those mid-cap shares are less than you know a few basis points in the index. So your exposure... Um, is actually quite significant and your ability to add um, differentiated returns is therefore also so. 
One noticeable absentee in your top 10 holdings is Naspas. Many asset managers, you know, are for Naspas. Others are against those who uh, actually, you know, have significant stakes in um, Naspas. Did really well over the last few years. What is your view on Naspas? Yeah, so um, this is the, the you know the the perfect question because it's hard to or obviously just to live you in just a couple of minutes. But the, the essence of it, and I think Nasdaq is particularly topical because, as you pointed out, um, virtually I'd say more than eighty um, percent of the fund managers in the in the market have Nasdaq among you know their, their biggest holding. But if you look at Nasdaq's weight in the benchmark, Nasdaq is you know significantly um, has a high weighting in the benchmark, both in particularly in the Swiss. Um, and so what's curious about this is that even though most managers have a high exposure, they're actually generally underweight. So we've ended up with this very interesting situation where a single counter um, has a very high weighting. And I think at extremes in markets, so if we go back to 2007, you know, you found a similar situation with Anglos and Billiton when the Aussie was the Invogue index and those two shares accounted for almost 30%, just two shares. Now we have NASPAS that accounts for 18%. And as you correctly put out, we have um, zero exposure to NASPAS in our portfolios. And ultimately, as, as the nature of the style-oriented manager that we are, which is value-based, it boils down to the fact that do we believe that NASPAS is fundamentally undervalued based on our judgment of what we believe it's worth. And while we think NASPAS is a great business and it's clearly delivered, you know, quite sharply into the growth that the market has been, you know, really pricing in, the question is today, is NASPAS undervalued relative to our expectations? And we actually believe that in order to justify holding NASPAS today, most people have to discount a very high level of the future growth, which we would in some instances say is optionality growth to justify holding the share today. Whereas you build up the value of NASPAS in terms of building up what you believe Tencent's fundamentally worth, and then the other assets, you would actually come to a value that would be below the current share price. Naturally, it's a very popular share, and naturally, um, you know, most people who own the share um, sometimes would seek to ascribe a value to a share like NASPAS based on what they believe the market is willing to pay for the assets. Now, what the market is willing to pay for the asset and whether the funds remain invested in, in a share doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the business is fundamentally worth. Um, it is a growing business, and I think we saw, for example, a transaction over the weekend which uh, where they sold um, you know, one of their meaningful assets, Allegro, for a price that was above what people thought it was, um, was, was going to be sold for. But what's important is that that was also a very important contributor to revenue and profits for that division in NASPAS. Um, and so there's a conundrum here in that you've sold an asset for more than you think it's worth, but you've also, your earnings are likely to actually decline as a result next year. So the question mark about a business like NASPAS is, is this a, a play that people buy for value unlock or are they buying it because of a growth thesis? And unequivocally, most investors that own NASPAS own it for the growth thesis, which is why the ratings are where it is, yeah. as opposed to a value unlock thesis. If you take that view, you would also not invest in, in Facebook, Amazon, or even Google. Well, I think the point is there's two levels of investment. I think often what is misunderstood with value investors is that it seems as though we don't want to buy growing businesses. In fact, it's, that's completely not true. We absolutely want to buy growing businesses, but we want to buy them when um, that growth that's been expected is not already fully discounted in the share price. Now, this ultimately boils down to assumptions. So what assumptions do we make about the future growth of the revenue, whether it's you know new growth or growth? 
growth that's a recovery growth, which is often where value investors tend to find themselves. Now, new growth, meaning areas that a business has not operated, is obviously harder to forecast. It doesn't mean that it can't be done with you know, an intelligent sense of judgment um, and assumptions. So certain of those assets, and we do do work on, on the global shares as well, and so we've you know, analyzed businesses like Google or Alphabet. We've analyzed businesses like Amazon. And interestingly, they, when you put you know, the, the type of probabilistic growth in the markets that they operate in, you can sometimes come to values that are not as different to the share price compared to our view of NASPAS. So it's not at all that value investors don't want to buy growth. We just don't want to buy it when so much of the growth is already priced in. Your opportunity for a different outcome, meaning if that growth were to disappoint, then means that the the potential for the share to disappoint is much more significant. But what we've seen in, in recent years was, you know, the people who picked NASPERS and, and believed the growth story, even at the levels the share traded at, actually outperformed the, the market significantly. How does that yes. feel from a value perspective to see yeah. a, an expensive share just becoming more expensive? Well, I think it goes back to, you You know, there are two things that, you know, are the essence of the question you're asking. So the first question is, you know, how has it felt to, you know, omit something that has obviously gone up a lot? And clearly it's it's not great. There's massive opportunity cost. It's it's a less worse, if I were to use that terminology, um, you know, to be to be not invested in something that goes up rather than to be invested in something that permanently falls, which is a far worse feeling, you know, if you lose your client's money rather than missed out on something. So it's that constant balancing act. Um, you know, you mentioned other managers and the fact that they were invested in this and, and it went up, a, you know, a lot. And I guess the point there is to understand that it's something you alluded to earlier, that when a share is as big in a benchmark as NASPAS is, the question is, is it being owned because it's believed to be fundamentally undervalued or is it owned by a manager because of the sheer size in the benchmark and, and the fact that most managers you know, don't have the appetite to be below a benchmark return significantly. So there is a slight conundrum with most managers' exposure to NASPAS and that if you fundamentally believe that this was a brilliant business and, and you know, cheaply and attractively priced, a true active manager would then be overweight NASPAS, which would be meaning owning as much as 20% in your portfolio in that share because you believe it was so fundamentally attractive. Um, most managers are around half that weighting. So they're actually quite underweight this year, notwithstanding the fact that it's their biggest holding. Yeah. So is it is it really because that they believe it's one of the most attractive assets or is it simply because they don't want to withstand the return that's too different from the benchmark? The point is that ultimately every manager has to determine their identity and their thesis for why they invest in any share, what makes any individual share attractive and why are you prepared to risk your client's assets by being invested in it. And we probably spend disproportionately a lot of our time looking at shares, including mostly the shares that we're not invested in for areas of omission, as well as the ones that we are invested in. And based on the work that we've done, our value for NASPAS is below what the current share price is. Just lastly, we are living in interesting times. There is a lot of political noise around. We could see quite divergent you know, scenarios playing themselves out over the next few months. What, what is your advice for investors? How could these scenarios impact investments? And, and, and is there anything they can do to reduce the risk or even, dare I say, it, increase some um, return on it? Yeah, so, you know, the interesting thing about investing and I guess the world in general, and I think we've certainly gotten used to it in South Africa, is 
the level of dynamic. Perhaps what's been unusual about this year is that the amount of change has just been of of an order of magnitude more greater than we are typically used to in a short space of time. Many of the conversations we have with clients are really focused on all the uncertainty that everyone already knows about in terms of the uncertainty about the ratings downgrade, the political uncertainty, and uncertainty you know, at, a, at a global level, whether it's you know geopolitical, whether it's or other levels. And the important point is that out of those discussions, no one has you know clear foresight about how things are going to end. And I think the word you use, big scenarios, is the critical word, and that you almost have to work out in for various scenarios how are you positioned in your portfolios, um, given that we have no clarity on where things might end. Um, and so I think critical for investment and any investor out there or a client is that you actually have to make those decisions when you're not steeped in a sense of emotion. You have to do that, you know, at strategic points and then make those two counter all forms of scenarios that might come. We are in a particularly unusual time now, so it's a heightened conversation. But if anything, if you have already positioned your portfolios for the fact that investing in general is about multiple potential outcomes, whether it's globally or locally, the idea is just to, if you believe it's a well-diversified you know, set up, remain with it and not to react. I think one of the things that investors do um, extremely badly to hurt their outcomes is that is the overreaction and the behavioral element, which is exactly feeds into the sentiment of the market at exactly the wrong point in time. So despite the fact right now that the market optically is expensive because of a few shares, uncertainty is extremely high on near-term earnings visibility. The irony is that there are more attractive shares across the breadth of the market today in terms of their future long-term return because of current pricing than there was a year ago or even four years ago. So this is the time to actually, um, with the right manager, to remain invested, not necessarily to react. Thank you, Delphine. That was Delphine Govender. She is the co-owner and chief investment officer of Perpetua Investment Managers.